I just think about how you must feel mm -hmm. like having to, whether it's a week away, two months away, three years away, right, right? right? But you have this very real kind of, we all know we're gonna pass, we're all, we all know we're gonna right, die, right. but it feels like now it's more in your face, would mm -hmm. you say? Mm -hmm. So how, how have you been thinking about your life and your mortality and what happens after you die? Um, I haven't given much thought, a deep thought, other than um, if if I were if I were to roll the dice now, I would think I'm gonna have it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're listening. <laughs> hey listeners, in our last podcast, we told you we lost our dad. We want to tell our dad's story of his bout with cancer from the perspective of not only his children, but also as his primary caregivers. We feel like sharing his cancer story, our grief story, and some research may be helpful for folks, especially during this time. Unfortunately, you didn't have much time to get to know our dad. So let's start this episode with an empathetic connection by just sharing what our dad meant to us. So Nevin, what did Dan mean to you? Mm. Um, he he meant a lot. He especially as I got older, he um really became my best friend. Um, he we used to talk about everything together. Um, we I think. Um, where a lot of things sometimes push families apart, it brought us close together. Like me coming out to him, um, it really brought us closer together. Like when I think about some of my best experiences at gay clubs, it was with him. <laughs> and like, yeah, he taught me a lot of life lessons about loving other people being respectful he was always like on me to be super polite which i already thought i was but he took it to another t like one of my favorite things that i think like paints the picture of him and like what he meant and teaching me is i remember let's see if you remember this he wouldn't let us call people ugly we'd have to say they're unattractive to us. <laughs> I do remember that. Dad started that? Yes. They were like, you don't, don't call anyone. They're unattractive to you. Um, and to me, it was like, I, I know I, I've told my friends that kind of story to give them an idea of like, I think some of the best parts of me, um, those kind of things, um, this kind of um, desire, this zest of life come from him. Um, and so, yeah, I think in looking forward also, um, I now feel like I have to consider not only what he, his life means to me, but also his death. Mm -hmm. I'm sad about all the things he won't, I won't, he won't be there for with me to experience. Um, but I think that goes towards what he also means to me because if I didn't love him so much, if I didn't care about him, um, I wouldn't feel like I'm missing out now. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think that those are some of the just things he means to me. Um, I feel like in losing him, I've lost a part of me, and but it, that's even a bad way to say it. I've lost this part of this a, a connectedness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So what? What does dad mean to you? <laughs> yeah, I um, usually talk a lot, but I feel like for this, I don't really have words. Mm. Like I, I was telling my friends so when dad um, first was sick, like I was like, you know, and telling you too, like if he dies, you're going to have to pick me up off the floor. Like I just love him so much. And it is really hard for me to imagine a world where he's not in it. Like mm. I don't want to be in that world. Um, so like what he means to me is very difficult to put into words. I think he's shown me what it means to work hard and be persistent and determined and have your eye on a goal, but also to be compassionate and caring and go out of your way and speak to people, be kind to people. And, um, also more recently, what an amazing parent he was. Mm -hmm. And like, he just the bar for parenthood, like when I think about the type of parent I am and then think about dad, I'm like, damn, the bar is so high. (laughs) Like he just was a fantastic parent. And it's even now it's like hard for me to even imagine that he's not here. Like I just, I can't even like come to grips with that reality. Like it just does not feel real, you know, like that, um, that, famous like quote I guess now cliche cliche it's better to have um loved and lost than to not have loved at all I'm like I don't know if that's true Mm. (laughs) like I'm like but is it like I mean he was such a phenomenal dad that like of course I'm glad that I had him in my life but the pain is so great and the hole is so big Mm. that like is it is it better to have had this pain and had this like I feel like short time with him or to like not have ever felt this pain and not have ever known what it is like to have such an amazing dad. So it's really hard for me to like say it succinctly or eloquently, but it meant a lot. Mm-hmm. And when I think about like just your answer and even the question, what does dad mean to you? You are also connected to, to other humans in your life. And so I'm curious and and what I heard it was a lot of framing it from him being your father but he's also a grandfather and father-in-law to people in your life do yeah. you feel that as well like that loss or yeah um I mean I feel sad for them mm-hmm. but I feel more sad for myself <laughs> um so I don't know I, I mean, I recognize that they have feelings and that they are probably impacted by the passing of dad, but, like, I just have no space to even, like, fully recognize what those feelings are, really. So, Nia, can you walk me through what it was like um, for you when you got the call? Um, that dad was sick? Yeah, so actually, um, dad, like, I think a few months before I got the call, had mentioned that, like, 
he had gone to the ER for something and they were running a lot of tests and they were unable to find an answer that was indeterminate is what he said. He said to spend hours and hours in that, um, in the ER and they had no idea what was wrong with him. And I can't remember what the issue was, if he was having fevers or just feeling sluggish or whatever. And then months later, um, I feel like I, he came to Chicago and I saw him and he just looked so weak. Like we were supposed to be putting stuff together for my son's, um, I don't know if it was his birthday or what it was, but like he, he looked like he was so frail, like he couldn't do anything. And so I remember telling him like, you need to go figure out what's wrong. And he like kind of put it off. And then one day he had difficulty breathing, I think. And one of our cousins like forced him and drove him to the ER. And so they were walking me through what was going on then. Um, and then I remember the next day, they had admitted him to the hospital and the hospitalist called me. They knew like I was a doctor. And um, I said to her, she called, she said, you know, it looks like there's something going on with his blood, like maybe cancer, um, if it were me. And I was like, I'm coming. Like, you know, if this was my dad. And I was like, her, you know, I'm coming. I was in, about to jump in the shower. I got that call and like went straight to went straight to um, the airport and went home. Um, by the time I got to the hospital, it was night. She called me early in the morning by the time I had gotten the flight and gotten there. It was the nighttime and he was like really struggling to breathe. There was family there in the waiting room and he was struggling to breathe. And we were, they were saying to him like, you know, if you, if you need help breathing, we're going to help you breathe, meaning we're going to put a breathing tube down. And I said, Dad, is that is that what you want? And he kind of was like trying to express to me, yes, but I, you know, I, I want to live. I want to live. Um, so he ended up needing that tube and stayed in the ICU. He was admitted to the ICU because he was so sick for like at least a week. And I remember just like sleeping in the um, ICU room next to his bedside. This was before COVID. And Please, remember pleading with God, like, please just make my dad, let my dad live through this. Like, I just can't imagine my life without him. Please, like, what's going on? Please, please, please. He was diagnosed with um, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a type of cancer. And they started, like, in fact, the nurses just came in to, like, start him on chemo before I even knew for sure what it was. And they're like, oh, we're hanging this chemo bag. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And they're like, oh, they nobody talked to you? Nobody told you? Just, like reinforce the fact to me that like the medical system is very very messed up mm. but so they had started the chemo while he was in the ICU and he was still had the breathing tube and was making these decisions sleeping in the in the room merely because I wanted to be with him but then also I wanted to be on top of everything that was happening because doctors were coming in nurses everybody was managing stuff and none of that information I felt like was going to get to me unless I was right there and they knew how mm. I was involved. I, w I was going to be like, I'm one of those, those family members. You need to up update me. You need to wake me up. You need to tell me what medicine he's on. And I felt like that was a shame that you had to do that. But I, um, I struggled a lot. I cried like almost every single night mm. in that room. Cause I was just like, I just cannot, I'm not ready. Like I can't have him die. Like he's a fighter. He's going to pull through this. And so I, that's what I remember kind of most about like that time. Eventually, you know, he got out of the ICU and 
was diagnosed with cancer and you know the story kind of continues from there but I just remember being in ICU being so scared being the fam the point of contact that had to make the medical decisions and also update the family um, and Mm. having a dad that was unable to talk to me Um, so that's what I remember most what about you I forgot parts until I heard some of what you said because I forgot how he was sick before. Mm-hmm. I remember I had gone home and he was just moving real slow mm-hmm. and looked a little frown. I said, are you losing weight? Like you look, you look skinny, like you look sick. Mm-hmm. And I kept on saying that to him, like you look sick. And I was like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, you know, and he always was, I don't I want to say refused to go to hospitals, <laughs> but- That's accurate. He had to be near, uh, like, have an arm chopped off to go. <laughs> and I remember him sharing updates. Yeah, I remember seeing a bunch of family there, and there were questions of, would he know it was me? Um, was he cognizant of, to know? And so I was like, oh, what, what has happened so fast? And then I remember seeing him, and then I think at that point... Um, I was like, oh, um, it's bad. It was right before they put the tube in, mm. and they were going to have to do it. And I remember you, me, Mom, we hugged in the hall, and I started crying. Mm. Um, I think we all did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we did. I wasn't looking at any of y'all, so I was on my tears. <laughs> um, and then I remember, which is sad that people have to figure this out, but I remember I had a Monday class, and I was like, feeling like I hadn't been at my, where I work long enough to mm-hmm. be able to just like cancel class and do things like that. Yeah. And so I decided to cancel. And then um, I remember thinking, okay, I need to take a long-term approach because you don't know. Because we hadn't got an answer, I don't think, till Wednesday that it was mm-hmm. actually cancer. They were running a lot of tests and I knew that I taught on Wednesday or something and or I knew that you had clinic or something Wednesday and I thought well I can go teach and I can come back I remember that and so and and it kind of sucks that you have to make decisions and choices or or you feel like you have to or I felt like I had to um but I remember making the choice of like um yeah I'll leave and then come back because my schedule will be more flexible where Nia put in this work on the front and by the way they're speaking a lot of medical jargon that I wouldn't understand Mm -hmm. um, or be able to communicate so and I remember also feeling like partially like a bad son for leaving Mm. Um, yeah but uh, I know that a lot of the things that we were thinking of especially when we got the news or when people get news like that it's like okay you have leukemia is there a cure? What can you do? And mm. so one of the first things on our mind was transplant. Yeah, they talked a lot about um, transplant, but there's not a lot of Black or African-American um, donors on the, the list. So one of the things we were worried about at all was like, would there even be a match? But then I feel like once we got even past that, it was like my dad... Um, like trying to fight for him because they were concerned that he didn't have enough support in place, like caregiving, emotional support, financial support. Um, And they 
the stem cell transplant process is such a huge undertaking and such a huge investment from the donor, from the medical system, from the recipient, that they want to make sure like all their um, ducks are in a row before they just do the transplant. I remember them having really serious concerns that dad didn't have all the things that he needed to even get the transplant. So I think that was really one of our first hurdles was kind of proving or saying like he does please allow him this fighting chance because if he doesn't even get the transplant right he's not the prognosis is or the outcome is not it doesn't look good right and with the transplant the problems we ran into were he has brothers but they're all old yeah and then um, he's the youngest yeah and and i wasn't able to even be a possible donor so that even idea that we would find someone who was like in Berlin, Germany? I know. Uh, was a one in a million like chance and shot. It really was. I was really thankful for that person and wish I could like have connected with them and yeah. say, like, thank you so much for this amazing thing that you did. Like, you don't even know him and you have given us the gift of life and thank you so much. So I wish I could have said that to them. Yeah. You know. And, and caregiving, trying to arrange that, I just, I remember that that was a monster. That was a big ordeal and just thinking about like, you know, people don't have the financial support to have somebody with them for 24-7. That's it. That's in and of itself. It made me want to look into the issue of probably disparities in bone and stem cell transplant and who is able to have somebody stay at home with them and cook all their meals because it was a really intense process. And I know you felt like a bad son earlier on because you left. But you ended up moving back home just to care for dad 24-7 back in Cincinnati. What was yeah. what was that like? That was uh, that was a rough one. <laughs> that was a rough time, mostly because I I didn't actually move back. Unfortunately, I was I still had to teach in Chicago. That's true. So what I would do is I would spend like pretty much like 16 hours in Chicago. And then I would, uh, I would teach, I would have to teach in Chicago from 10 a.m. to 7.30 mm-hmm. p.m. Because what I did is I loaded, I had to meet with like students kind of individually and I loaded them all in one day mm-hmm. so that I could be more flexible. And so I would meet with them and then drive to Cincinnati after class at 7.30, get to Cincinnati at like 1, 2 a.m., whatever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I would be there for like pretty much all the week and then leave um, the night before I had to teach. And so, yeah. And and the only, I would say the roughest part about it, I think, was what I thought I was missing out on. And I'll say that was hard, but also dad was not a very easy patient. (laughs) He, because at that time I was drive him back to take him to doctor's appointments, mm-hmm. make sure he was getting um, uh, checkups and stuff. Yeah. And it got to be, oh, I remember what happened is he had a, he had a fever. Um, and he had had a high temperature the night before and refused to go in. And then when I got there in the morning, I was, uh, his, uh, other person who was helping out told me and I was like well let's check your temperature and I was like dad this is one of the things they said we have to call and bring you in right away and so we did and then I remember he did have a temperature and they had to try to get it down and at that point one of our uh, friends that was helping out kind of said they can do it mm-hmm, I'm done anymore 
forgot about that. Yeah, and that's why ultimately I think we ended up moving him. Yeah, to Chicago, which was, um, honestly, it was really nice to have him in the house. Um, but as you mentioned, we were still working and still juggling all those things. And that wasn't always the most compliant patient. Like, definitely, we got into a lot of battles about taking his meds and when he should take his meds. And, you know, I wonder, and I was going to ask you, if your job knew all the acrobatics you were doing to make that work. Because I certainly didn't really tell my bosses or the people, powers that be, that, like, I was doing all this stuff to try to, like, you know, care for my dad. Like, I needed to... Um, not do certain night hours or whatever it was Um, because that it was really really tough to to juggle all that and to live your normal try to live your normal life Um, my job knew I I wondered if my students knew because mm. my uh, uh, it became it became a bit much I, I just had a thing go off in my head because I think I at one time got a I got a student evaluation that was like I didn't like that we started like class 15 minutes late one time and that's, and that's wow and, yeah and that's because I actually had gone straight from Cincinnati to class, class. Wow. yeah um but yeah wowzer that is crazy it um definitely makes me think of the quote like the or not the quote but um some people feel like um people are lazy and they're slackers I tend to fall in that boat sometimes and others feel like people are doing the best they can with what they you know with what they have and to me that's definitely a moment of like damn you never really know what people are going through or dealing with but yeah so he came Chicago in July and like I said we got into a lot of bouts he felt like I was a prison warden and I was (laughs) keeping him on the strict schedule schedule. but he was doing great he gained weight starting to grow his hair back and then by November he was like let me out of here so he went back to Cincinnati, was ready to live his best life. I don't know, you know, um, what happened after he left my purview. But all I knew was um, he was back home. And as far as I could tell, he was doing great until he wasn't. Essentially, his cancer had to come back, right? And so that was uh, that was tough because the transplant didn't necessarily take in the way that we wanted to. So he was going to have to have a second transplant. Yeah. And um, I think because of COVID, we didn't hear a lot of the things that were supposed to happen. Like we were kind of delayed in getting the information, which in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of a, a, a dad who's got cancer, um, who's sometimes hard to contact. It was really, really a scary time, I think. Um, and then in the midst of that, I think we um, had some hope though, like the, the donor was able to give more of the stem cells. It took a while because of COVID, but he got them. So we were like elated, like, okay, this is another chance he got, like, he is going to beat this. He got a second, uh, stem cell transplant. That's amazing. And then the cancer came back again, like the, it had rebounded so fast mm. that, we started to get worried and the doctor started to get worried. And I think that's when. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I had gone back, um, because we were worried about him and, um, I, I'm, I'm probably freezing up right now because I can picture, I can, I, I can't picture every moment, but I can picture the way I felt. 
mm. um, and seeing him, which was like, I felt um, like I couldn't move. Like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help. So like, um, I feel like a bunch of his organs were failing and we were, I was, I was sitting there um, by his bed and all of a sudden like all machines started beeping he had a team of like eight doctors that were coming in and he was like really struggling and uh fighting fighting to breathe and they and, 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 and the doctors are saying uh norman breathe you know norman breathe you, you, you gotta breathe norman breathe norman breathe and 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 i'm laying there i can hear now but physically, you know, I couldn't. I mean, physically, it was, you know, it was like holding my breath. They said, you gotta breathe. And I think they were trying to do things and stuff like that. You gotta breathe, you gotta breathe. And, and it, it was almost if somebody was drowning and, and if I was drowning, you know, those last couple of minutes or seconds. Norman, you gotta breathe, you gotta breathe. You gotta hold on, Norman, hold. And I had the doctors, I mean, the nurses, you gotta hold on. You gotta hold, hold on. You gotta breathe. You gotta breathe. You gotta, you know. And, and, and I can visibly see now. And uh, you know, uh, I mean, tears was coming down. It's, you gotta breathe. You got, you gotta hold on. You gotta hold on. And, and and I don't know exactly what they were doing or what they had tried to do or were doing, but but. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And, and, it, and to me, I fought it. I fought it. They was encouraging me. And and I was like, I'm going to die. You know? They said, Norman, you got to breathe. You got to breathe. You got you to gotta hold on, Norman. You got to hold on. You got to hold on. And, and, and you got to hold on. And I was like, I'm going to die. Mm. You got to hold on. You got to hold on. You got to hold on. I mean, they were just coaching me hard. They was coaching me real hard to whatever I, I had to do that I was doing. And, and, and I was trying, but nothing. And I was just holding, you know, I was laying back holding on. I could hear them. And, and earlier I could see them, but I could hear them. You got to, you know, you got to do this. You got to do this, Norman. Stay with us, Norman. Stay with us, Norman. And stuff like stay with us, Norman. Stay with us, Norman. I, I, I thought he was gonna die. Mm -hmm. I was pretty set on it. And actually, the one of the um, medical professionals came and asked me who power of attorney was. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was eminent, and I had never seen such a um, just as I describe it, like this violent fighting mm -hmm. for life. Which made me think he was at the end. So when you said to come, I was like, oh, it must be really bad. Because he's definitely been sick before, in the hospital before, and you've been there before. And you've never been like, no, I don't think you need to come for this. But when you said that, I was like, okay, I'm getting on the plane, and I guess we're, we're going to do this. We're going to go. Yeah. I, I feel like in what, what also came with that time eventually when you got there is them saying you know like we, we kind of we've done all we can yeah 
Um, there's nothing more that we in Cincinnati at least can do. Um, and we're trying to um, set up, see what all our op- kind of options elsewhere were, and there kind of weren't any. Um, and so eventually, you know, he moved back to Chicago. Again, there were support issues. So back to Chicago to spend time with us. And um, at the last hospital, they really drove the point home about, like, this is what a terminal illness looks like. Like, do you want to spend the rest of your days coming every week to have a doctor's appointment? Or do you want to spend the rest of your days with your family? And so he talked a lot about what that decision meant for him and what that looked like and really drew on his experiences with his mom who had lung cancer um, and how he dealt with his own grief and um, her passing. Being with my mother, um, when I went and looked at her, you know, and and you knew it wasn't gonna be long. You knew it was gonna be uh, just a couple of days. and that was rough. Mm. And I knew it, you know, but even when she died, it was just hard. Yeah. And I had, and I had like four or five days to prepare myself yeah. that she was no longer gonna be here. But it was it was just hard. Just talk about it, just talk about it, just say it, just say it. But when it happens, it happens. Yeah. There's no like do-overs. You know right, what I'm saying? Right, right. So I, I told her, you know, that was the part that I struggled with with hospice. The loss of his father was sudden. Um, and I think that created his experience of um, around grief. And so when he um, also, you know, lost his mother, he had, it seems like, two kind of maybe similar but a little different experiences um, in, in how grief showed up. And so I know the kind of grief uh, that, the type of grief that we have and, and had would be considered um, anticipatory grief. Yeah, absolutely. And um, us going through that process of walking with our dad through the journey of cancer as his kids, but also caregivers. There is a study um, in um, a journal that's entitled Family Anticipatory Grief, an Integrative Literature Approach by Cole Hole and Barbosa. And they talk about um, all the literature that's on anticipatory grief and how there are there were 10 main themes that they found for families that are experiencing anticipatory grief. So meaning that they're anticipating the loss or the death of a loved one. And so some of those themes and characteristics were the anticipation of death, emotional distress, intrapsychic and interpersonal protection, exclusive focus on patient care, hope, ambivalence, personal losses, relational losses, end-of-life relational task, and transition. Um, I wanted to know if any of those themes like resonate with you or hit home, given our own, our own experiences. Yeah. Well, I know in that 
article they talk about like um like the grief being inhibited or you feel like you can't truly experience it because you kind of have to carry on um and function as this person you know is kind of like um actively or inactively dying in mm-hmm. front of you and i feel like that was a lot of it and the way i coped through that was by making jokes um mm. and, and using humor because it was like having to face the reality that you're father's dying as you're taking care of him but like you still gotta work mm-hmm. you still have to like do these daily tasks take mm-hmm. um, your son to school mm-hmm. whatever cook dinner right um, go home like do all these things and it's so like I felt like I couldn't really place myself fully in the perspective of my dad is dying Yeah, it was like no, I have to take care of this person on top of doing these other things um, because it was this kind of process, a process rather than this instant kind of loss. Yeah, and that's right on with what the authors talk about with the intrapsychic and interpersonal protection about how you feel the need to protect yourself from that really painful reality and you repress these feelings and you feel like numb because you can't be overwhelmed with the reality of what's right in front of you one of the things I really resonate with is in the article they talk about some people cry alone Mm. as a way to relieve the tension Um, so um, it's kind of like an outshoot of interpersonal protection um, because the whole family's under stress so you don't want to exhibit outward emotion either to be weak or to put added burden on your family because not only do they have to care for the caregiver but now you're crying so Mm -hmm. they have to care for you so you find ways to kind of um, either repress or do this alone and I think I was telling you like like my weakest moments even now are like when I'm alone like Mm -hmm. in the shower like when I don't have to like carry on for anyone those are the hardest times for me and so I really resonate um, kind of with the, this kind of sense of feeling the need to protect others. There are rooms that he was in in the house that I have kept the door closed. I mean, obviously it just happened, but the doors are closed in those rooms. Like I can't even, I don't even want to see that it's empty. Yeah. So I think that is hard. That's tough. So how do you think, you know, his death and and being so integrally involved in his care um, in, in the kind of life that he led, how does all of that kind of culminate into the now? Like, what will you take? Are there lessons? Are there things that you'll carry forward with you? Are there ways that you're going to honor his legacy and his life um, that are more real to you now, now that you're kind of on the you know, you're not in the midst of the caregiving, you're not in the midst of the cancer battle, but you're kind of on the other side of that. Um, I think once it, like, fully hits me, the biggest thing is, like, it was always, to me, a huge proponent of, you know, you have one life to live, mm-hmm. and you need to have fun while you're here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, that is something I'm truly always going to take to heart, is making time for joy and mm. fun, especially in connecting with the people I love and, um, yeah, surrounding myself with people that um, bring me a lot of joy. Love joy.
I like it. I think that's beautiful. And one of the um, quotes he loved was from a movie, which was he was saying he is going to get busy living because you have two options. You can get busy living or get busy dying. And he said even from the beginning from of his diagnosis that he was going to get busy living. So I think we should too. Clearly unfiltered on this show. <laughs> even as we're closing, our parents cannot stop talking. I love it. Come back if you want to hear more foolishness. We love you guys. Love you. Love Cheers. You. Peace.